So what good is God when life is bad? Life is, is unpredictable. Life is hard. Life is disappointing. Life wears on us. What good is God when life is bad? Life is full of suffering. You can't avoid it. And suffering is no respecter of persons. Suffering doesn't care if you have money. Suffering will crash the stock market. Suffering doesn't matter if you have an amazing spouse. It'll take them in a car crash. Suffering doesn't matter if you have amazing kids. Suffering will take them with cancer. Suffering doesn't matter if you have a perfectly healthy body. It'll take it with disease. Suffering doesn't matter, or suffering doesn't care if you're alive today, it'll take your life tomorrow. And you're probably thinking, sheesh, I mean, this is like a, this is a great way for this guy to start a sermon. A little bleak, don't you think? I don't think so. Uh, the reality is that these things are true. This is... This is life. I mean, life can change in a millisecond. And if you haven't already experienced, you know, significant suffering in your life, you will. And the reality is we all experience suffering and disappointment in in all the vast, you know, various ways that pain can come into our life. We experience it every day. And one of the best things I can do as a pastor is help prepare you to suffer well. I mean, I could just, you know, avoid it in all my teaching. I could lie to you and tell you the things like last week that we talked about of prosperity, Christianity, and, um, you know, but then I'm just setting you up to, to be even more disappointed and more hurt when you suffer. In Romans 8, this is something that Romans 8 is, is addressing head on. It's, it's saying, okay, all this, these heavenly truths, what earthly good are they? What, 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 what difference do they make on the ground in your life from day to day, from moment to moment, in the good and especially in the bad? The God of the Bible is a God who wants to help you in those moments. He, he's not a God who's trying to extract you from them or, or to make you go through them alone or to make you hide them from him and from other people, he wants to step into the middle of your valley of the shadow of death and lead you through it. Jesus was very clear to his closest disciples in John 16. He said, in this world, in this life, you will have tribulations. You will suffer, is what he's saying. You will be rejected. You will experience pain. And so I want to be frank and honest with you that just as we're experiencing now with this you know, worldwide pandemic and tons of other things going on in your lives, life is hard. But I also want to be frank and upfront about the hope that is provided through Jesus Christ. And really, if you look at all the other options, some of which we looked at last week, that the hope that God offers through Christ uh, out, outshines everything else. Because Jesus goes on to say in John 16, 33, in that verse, but take heart, I 
have overcome the world. And that's exactly what we're looking at in Romans 8 this morning. Last week we saw that through the cross, we see that God is not foreign, is not a stranger to suffering and to injustice, but he entered into it fully. And in so doing, he started its reversal. And not only that, but we have hope because of the future resurrection of our bodies. That whatever this life steals, whatever this life sours, whatever injustice we experience in this life, in the end, God restores it back to us. He makes it new. He makes, he's making all things new. And we will live with, Jesus will live with one another on a new heavens and a new earth. And so this morning, what we're seeing in the next part of Romans 8, verses 26 through 30, is this, that it is confronting two very common lies that you believe when you suffer. And the first one that we're going to look at is this. The first lie is that God doesn't care. When I am suffering, this is proof that God does not care. That's the first lie. The second lie that we'll look at is this. When I am suffering, God is not in control. So those are the two lies that we're going to look at that Romans 8 addresses directly. So before we jump in, let's say our series mantra. I want you to say it out loud. I want you to put it in the chat, all right? It's from Romans 8.31 that says this, if God is for us, who can be against us? All right, so say it with me. If God is for us, who can be against us? So the first line that we believe in suffering, God doesn't care. Isn't that exactly what pain and suffering causes you to think deep down and to ask God, to cry out to him, God, why why are you letting this happen to me? How could you let this happen to me? If you were really good, you wouldn't let this happen to me. If you really cared, you would do something about this. Paul, in the very first verse in this section of verse 26, begins to say this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So he starts out by saying, likewise. So he's saying, you know, just as I just told you that the cross and the resurrection provide you unshakable, incorruptible hope that it it was not always supposed to be this way, God has done something about it, and it will not always be this way. Likewise, not only can you hope, not only does God give you hope, but God gives you help. And the the help that he gives you is because of your weakness. And in this context of suffering, that word there for weakness can be translated feeble, fragile, even sick or diseased. And so the idea is this, is that living in a fallen world as you do and as I do, it, it breaks you down. It wears you down. Living with nasty people, <laughs> you know, being a nasty person, stubbing your toe on a root, like, God, why did you let that root grow right there? Life is tough. And it breaks us down. 
And we can even become sick with a virus. And we become weak. And in that weakness, in that fragile, emptied, depressed, discouraged place is exactly where the God of the Bible loves to show up. That's exactly where he loves to do some of his greatest work in your life. Not on the mountaintop, but in the valley. I was just thinking about this because I went uh, backpacking with my brother last week. And when you're up in the mountains, we're in the mountains of North Carolina, and, you know, where's the water? It's always in the valleys, right? The water's never up at the top. Now, it flows from the top, but where it's all headed down to the bottom. So the refreshing places that God meets us is really in, in the valley. And this is what the Spirit does to help us in our weakness. It's, it's somewhat interesting, and I don't think that outside of the revelation of the Bible we would ever think of this. This is what Paul goes on to say. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. This is so honest. I mean, when you are really suffering, when you've really experienced loss, you get so broken. You get the wind knocked out of you so badly that you can't even do the one thing you should do and you're supposed to be able to do when you can do nothing else, which is to just voice a prayer. And sometimes you're hurting so badly you cannot even pray. And when you pray, you don't even pray for the right thing. You don't even know what to pray for. God cares. God helps. The Spirit helps you when you can't even pray. And this is what the Spirit does. It says this, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, we can't understand this fully. I mean, I think, I think Paul's opening up a window to something really mysterious here. But nonetheless, think about this. Think about this. The Holy Spirit himself searches your heart to find the things, to find the cries, to find the groans in your suffering that you can't even articulate, that you can't even discern, that you don't even really know are there. And what does he do? He mines them out and he brings them to the feet of the living God and says, your son, your daughter, this is what is in their heart. This is their situation. You need to help them. You need to do something for them. And you know what? When God hears your prayers, He works. He moves. How much more so the prayers of the Spirit of God Himself on your behalf? I mean, listen to this. When you can't even pray for yourself, God prays for you. When you can't do the one thing you should be able to do in your moment of weakness, God steps in to do for you. This is amazing. This is absolutely amazing. 
um, there was a Norwegian theologian named Ole Halsby who uh, resisted the Nazi occupation of Norway during World War II, and uh, he suffered for it. He got thrown to a concentration camp, a very serious, uh, deadly, dark place. And while he was there, he watched many of his friends die. And he wrote this about being with his friends in the concentration camp as they would die. He said, when I would stand at the bedside of my friends who are struggling with death, it is blessed to be able to say to them, do not worry about the prayers you cannot pray. You yourself are a prayer to God at this moment. All that is within you cries out to him, and he hears all the pleas that your suffering soul and body are making to him with groanings that cannot be uttered. Life is so hard. Grief is so intense that oftentimes you cannot find words to articulate it. And in those very moments, the Spirit takes those cries of your heart that you can't even get out to God, and He takes them straight to the Father. Suffering does not care about you, but God does. He meets you in your place of weakness. Do you think of the Holy Spirit this way? I think probably most Christians think of the Holy Spirit, at least most Christians in the circles that I'm running in, think of the Holy Spirit as kind of an impersonal force, if he even exists at all. But this, this verse is, is showing you that the Holy Spirit is a person who says, let me lend you a hand. I see that you've fallen down in the ditch. Let me, let me help you. That's what it says. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. It literally, literally means he, he lends us a hand. He lends you a hand. So in the midst of your pain and suffering, God is stepping into the middle of it to lend you a hand. So don't for a moment, even when the suffering comes, even if you're in it right now, don't believe that God doesn't care, right? Jesus said, you will suffer in this life. That's the reality, a fact of life, of living in a broken world. But when you do, the Spirit is in your heart crying out to the Father with the cries that you cannot cry to Him. And this brings me to the second lie that we believe when we suffer, that God is not in control. Suffering confronts you with the scary feeling that even if I used to believe that God was completely in charge, completely control, on the throne of the universe, and good, now that this is in my life, maybe he's not. Maybe he's not really as in control and attentive and powerful as I thought that he once was. And so Paul gives us, gives you more reason to have confidence 
in the, the midst of suffering and pain. And he gives really two reasons from this second section in verses 28 through 30 of why you can have confidence in the face of suffering that God is in control. And the first is this in verse 28, that God works all things together for good for his people. This is what, uh, this is what Paul says in verse 28, something vitally important to, to remember and to lay hold of and to cling to. And he, says we, and he says this, and we know that for those who love God, which is a way of him saying the people of God. It's not just saying when you love God, and if you don't love God in that moment because um, you're walking in sin or whatever it is, and this doesn't apply to you. He's just saying for, the, for those who enduringly love God over the course of their lives, the people of God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I love that he says this. He says, we know this. Earlier he said, we don't know what to pray. We don't know what to pray. God steps in. But we do know this. We know that God providentially is orchestrating all things ultimately to lead to good for you if you're a part of the people of Jesus. Now, I want to address something here that uh, is a very powerful thing going on in this moment, in this COVID-19 crisis. A lot of people, a lot of Christians, are getting very caught up, very involved in things that we do not know. The, the tons of conspiracy theories floating out there on the internet about COVID-19 and where it's come from and who caused it and why it's happening. These are things that you do not know. And I don't care how long you spend scouring the internet and the corners of the World Wide Web to figure out what, you know, where did this start? Why did it happen? What's the real reason? Listen, doing that is not going to do anything other than send you down a black hole of never figuring it out, fill you with anxiety, fill you with hatred towards certain people groups and certain leaders and individuals. Listen, you don't know and you won't know. So, so don't worry about that. Worry about what you do know. And that's this, that God works all things together for good. And I get it. And it's not like this, we don't have answers. We don't know where this came from. We don't know why this is happening. It seems like the world is out of control. It seems like God is not in control. I mean, the entire world's been affected by this. So it makes sense that you would want to try and figure this out and have a little bit of control. Um, but listen, even if the worst of the conspiracy theories out there, which I don't even know what they are, I, right? But just, I know that there are a ton out there and I've seen a lot of Christian leaders and Christian friends of mine that are believing this stuff. Even if the worst of them is true, Romans 8.28 is still true. God is working that together for, for your good. So, so why worry? Why 
worry. Why worry? God, he wants to, the suffering and the world wants to tie a rock around your neck and throw you out in the middle of the sea, right? Because in the suffering, you feel like it's like a sea, right? You're just getting tossed by the waves, you're getting hit by waves, and the world offers no resources, right? We talked about that with secularism last week, right? There's, there's zero resources there to have been suffering. So you just sink deeper and deeper and deeper into more discouragement and de- depression, ultimately despair, and you lose your, even your will to live. But rather what God wants to do is make you like into a buoy, right? Where you can get tossed around by the waves. And, and buoys, sometimes they'll go under for a second, but what happens? They come back to the surface. God's wanting to give you buoyancy in your life by reminding you of what's really true, that God's got this, that God's got this, that he's got us and that he's got you. Amen? He's got you, all right? So that's, that's the first um, thing that Paul wants to tell us about why we can have confidence that God is control, is in control. The second reason is this, that you can have confidence that God is in control, is that he is the author and the perfecter of your salvation, not you. Verse 28 ends by saying that in all things that God is working together, he has a purpose. And then he goes on to explain what that purpose is in verses 29 through 30. And he says in verses 29, he says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So ultimately, the purpose that God has in everything that will endure and will come to pass despite anything that may come against you, despite anything that you may do, including your own sin, your own brokenness, your own inner conflictedness that we talked about, that Romans 7 is the shadow cast over Romans 8, that deep inner struggle with remaining sin, remaining self-centeredness, even that cannot come against you and prevail against you. That ultimately, what God is doing in your life is he's pouring you into the mold of Jesus Christ. That he's, he, is, he is making you like Jesus. He is doing it. And he explains what has been called by many the golden chain of salvation. And this golden chain is comprised of five mountaintop peaks of the work of God, the gracious initiative of God in your life that shows from from before time began until when time ends, your, your rescue, your restoration, your rehabilitation, your resurrection is ultimately top from top to bottom beginning to end from God by God a gift from God that you simply stumble into and receive all right so i want to briefly very briefly walk through these components it's going to get a little deep okay we're going to be brief but it, these these are some pretty deep truths, okay? Um, so, so put on your, uh, your theological hard hat for a second, all right? 
because it could get a little rocky. But uh, ultimately, let's remember that, that Paul is telling you this. He's telling us this to give us comfort and encouragement in the face of our own weakness and in the face of coming to the end of ourselves. He's wanting to, to fill us up with hope, all right? So this unbreakable chain begins with this. Begins with verse 29 saying, For those whom God foreknew. Foreknew. This is, this is not foresight, all right? This is not God looking down the corridors of time to see who is going to choose him, and then he sets it up, right? That is, some people, you know, understand it that way. Um, and I, I think that that misses really the entire point that this is getting at. What Paul's trying to do is he's trying to build a foundation that, listen, you can't mess this thing up. Nothing in this world can mess this thing up. This good work that God is doing in your life, he, nothing can mess it up because God has foreknown you. That word know in the Bible, beginning to end, always means a deep, relational, intimate knowledge. Right? It even talks about, this is how the Bible describes a husband and a wife in, uh, in their relationship that they know one another. Before the foundations of the earth, God set his love on you. This is something that you and I can never fully comprehend or grasp, but it tells us this, that God loves you and God chose you for no other reason than he loves you. And, and listen, it has to be this way, or grace is not really grace. If God chooses some because they choose him first, well, then it's not really undeserved. It, it, that undermines the basic tenets of, of the good news of Jesus, right? And so, yes, this is higher than what we can understand, we, but, but this is what the Bible tells us. God not only foreknows, but those whom he foreknows, he also predestines. Now, I recognize that this word is probably somewhat um, unsettling to some of you, and for good reason, because if it's understood as talking about fate, you know, what's called fatalism, that what's going to be is going to be, and there's nothing you can do about it, well, that, you know, that describes the world and, and life in such a way that it's kind of like, well, I can just do whatever I want to get, get, whatever I want to do, because whatever's going to happen is going to happen, and that's not the picture that, that the Bible gives us. The picture that the Bible gives us is that God is fully in control and that people are fully responsible. The Bible gives both, like parallel tracks, and not in contradiction. And, but this destination that God has ordained for you is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And um, so it's a difficult one. This is one where you got to have your theological hard hat on because, you know, this isn't just the language of old, dead theologians. This is the language of the Bible. And so we've got to wrestle with it. Um, but I know for myself, I've come to a place where I'm actually really comfortable with this idea and language of God predestining, although I don't fully understand it, because it's another window into His grace. It's another window into His saving initiative in our lives, which brings us to the next one. That those whom God foreknows, He predestined, and those whom He predestines, He calls this idea of being called, it's not like God's like calling you up on the phone and like ring, 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 hoping you pick up, and if you don't, you don't. And No, this is a king summoning you. 
It's just you being summoned. And when you get summoned, you either come or there's consequences, right? This is the idea of God drawing. I think the picture of, of Jesus in John uh, 11, raising his friend Lazarus from the dead, captures this idea of what God's doing to you when he calls you to himself. Lazarus, Lazarus had been dead, and Jesus comes and, and he says this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And then it says, the man who had died came out. That's what God is doing. He's calling. He's saying, live. Come out of your grave. That's how you come to life. It's not because you make a decision, even. That's 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 a part of the whole thing, but that is not the reason. That's a reaction to God speaking and saying, live. But those whom he calls, he also justifies. And I've heard it explained like this, that being justified is like this. It's just if I'd never sinned. That God exchanges your record for the record of Jesus Christ. And when he died on the cross, he was absorbing in full the punishment for sin. He was absorbing in full the guilt of sin. He was absorbing in full the shame and the punishment and the death and the separation from God He was absorbing that, and in doing that, he was making possible for the exchange to be made for you to have his perfection, for you to have his union with God, for you to have his perfect relationship with the Father, his purity, his righteousness, all of those things he was making possible for you to have. And those whom he justifies, he also glorifies. This is the end of this unbreakable golden chain. And these are actually all in the past tense. So God has glorified you, which sounds backwards. We think about us glorifying God, not God glorifying us. But this is the this is the this is one of those amazing things that we can't fully wrap our minds around. But this is what is this is what God is doing for you. He's he has making your destination to be glorified, and he's putting it in the past tense because it is so certain that it will happen in the future, that you'll be fully and finally free from sin in body and in soul, that it might as well be true of you now. So you can say, I have been glorified. This thing's going to happen. It doesn't matter how messed up I am. It doesn't matter what happens in my life. It doesn't matter what I do. Now, this is not a license for sin, right? Because obviously this is making, this is paving the road for why we should obey, right? So we should live like this is true of us because it is true of us. But this is your destination, that no matter how shifty your past has been, no matter how dark your present is, your future is indescribably bright. So take that. Lay hold of that. Ray Orland, uh, one of my favorite pastors and authors, he, he wrote an entire book on just a single chapter of Romans 8. And on this particular section, he wrote this. It says, Paul wrote Romans 8 so that the Christians in Rome could walk into the arenas and face the lions with songs of praise on their lips because they felt in their hearts more keenly than they felt in their throats the fangs of the lions that nothing could ever separate them from the love of God. 
He goes on to say, the gospel, right, the good news of Jesus, has always been a transforming power, and it will always be when by God's grace we make it our own personal possession. This is what God is wanting to do for you right now. As His Word is going forth into your heart and mind, He is wanting to give you the resources to face the lions. He is wanting to give you the resources to face persecution. He is wanting to give you the resources to face rejection, disappointment, all kinds of unthinkable loss with hope. That His indestructible plan, no weapon formed against it will prevail. No weapon formed against you will prevail because God has set His love on you and He will finish what he started in you. He will bring it to completion. So do not despair, no matter how dark your life gets. Do not despair now how many, how many shattered pieces your life falls into. God is working all things together for good. So believer, make that your personal possession. Let that speak a better word to you than the conspiracy theories. Let that speak a better word to you than your bank account. Let that speak a better word to you than your relationship status. Let that speak a better word to you than your prognosis. And person who's not a believer, if you don't have hope, this hope is available to you. It's not an accident that you're listening in right now. God has ordained this very moment. So don't delay. If you hear God calling you to live, drawing you to himself, respond to that. Talk to him. Just tell him. Just If you've never prayed before, just say, God, like you're speaking to me. I'm listening. Show me who you are. And he will meet you in that promise. So let's pray. Father, thank you that you do more than we could ever ask or imagine or think. And you have shown us some, some deep, amazing things this morning in your word. And we ask for the ability to not only understand with our minds, but believe with our hearts. God, make Antioch Community Church into a community of your people that is filled with your hope, that groans and grieves with the suffering and injustice of this life, but breathes the breath of the Spirit, which is hope. So God, make that true of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.